Welcome to the Minkcast, an interview series featuring dissenting voices that the establishment would rather you didn't hear about. I'm senior staff writer Alan McLeod, and I'll be your host today. To help us continue with these interviews, we invite you to become a member of our Patreon, which we will link in the video description down below. And as an independent watchdog media outlet that exposes the corruption of the ruling class, we are constantly hit by algorithms and other soft censorship. So if there's any way you can help by donating or even just liking and sharing this segment, that would be immensely helpful. Now, today, the world's fifth largest country, Brazil, is at a crossroads. With elections coming up next year, the country will choose between another four years of far-right authoritarian Jair Bolsonaro or a return to the social democratic anti-imperialist Lula da Silva, who is currently 15 to 20 points ahead in the polls. Or will they? Brazil is actually rife with speculation now that a military-backed coup will occur in order to stop Lula returning to power. To discuss Brazil's current predicament, I'm joined today by Brian Meir. Brian is the co-editor of Brazil Wire and the editor of the book Year of Lead, Washington, Wall Street and the New Imperialism in Brazil. Unlike most journalists who write about the country, Brian has lived and worked in Brazil for over 25 years and speaks Portuguese. Uh, welcome to the show, Brian. Thanks for having me. Well, thank you very much for uh, giving up your time. Um, I suppose it's difficult um, to know where to begin with Brazil, but let's start with the, these enormous marches that the uh, president, Jair Bolsonaro, organized earlier this month. Uh, they fell on Brazilian Independence Day. Uh, these were framed as being a march against the Supreme Court and the corruption thereof, with Bolsonaro himself recently stating that he would either be arrested, killed, or declared winner in next year's presidential election, which does sound quite a lot like he's, um, he's going to stay in, uh, in stay president or die trying mode. Um, some people have even depicted what went on earlier this month as a coup attempt. What do you think about that? Do you share that outlet, uh, outlook? Well, I, I view the coup as an ongoing process, as Dilma Rousseff said in a recent interview as well. It's a process that started with the impeachment in 2016, consolidated with the political imprisonment of Lula in 2018 on frivolous charges, specifically to remove him from the election and enable Jair Bolsonaro, who was losing by 20 points in the polls, to, to win the election. And uh, there's been a lot of signs that he's at least trying to implement a kind of further clampdown, anti-democratic clampdown, maybe similar to what happened in 1968 with the Nixon administration-supported Institutional Act 5 in Brazil, which outlawed most political parties, unions, and social movements. Um, it looked like he was going to—he was testing the waters. Uh, with the September 7th protests. I went to Brasilia to cover them for, um, uh, for Telesur. And I was just, um, the feeling I had on the ground during those protests was that it was, it must've been what it was like to be at a Nazi rally in the 1930s. I mean, they had put these big banners of, of members of the Royal family from the 1800s on the, on the uh, sides of all of the, ministry buildings on the esplanade with quotes on them 
in green, in this like green color of national color of Brazil with quotes like, um, uh, I'd rather die than give up my freedom and things like that. And there was uh, fighter jets and army helicopters flying overhead. And every time it happened, the crowd all uniformly dressed in green and yellow would rise up and start uh, lift their hands in the air and start screaming and stuff like they were praying or something. People were praying for bad things to happen to Lula. It was very bizarre, but uh, they failed, you know? And since, since that's happened, his popularity has just slipped even more. His disapproval rating since September 7th has grown to an all-time high. And the most shocking thing about this is that um, for the first time now, evangelical Christians in their, the majority, the largest, there's more evangelical Christians who think that Bolsonaro is doing a poor to very bad job than those who approve of him. And this was his key demographic of getting elected. So his, his approval rating is down to like 22%. And that, you know, that just makes him dangerous. He's got 17 uh, current or retired military generals in his cabinet, over 6,000 military officers in his government. This is more than they had during the last two uh, presidencies during the military dictatorship. There's actually more military government now than there were in the last 10 years of military dictatorship, basically. And so we're kind of at this crossroads where we're wondering, you know, is there really gonna be an election next year? Uh, is there gonna be more of this kind of clampdown or have, the, uh, have elites who are antagonistic to him managed to turn the tables? I mean, a lot of people in agribusiness, for example, depend on China and they're sick of his anti-China xenophobia and things too you know so who, it's really just up in the air right now well i guess if it does go to election next year then his political opponent and his biggest test will be lula de silver who was president uh between 2003 and 2010 uh the head of the workers party could you explain who lula is and why he's so popular there yeah um lula represents a project of national development for Brazil. So there's a lot of confusion spread in the Anglo media, which try to reduce him to this kind of like cult of personality figure who has a kind of like cult-like following or something among really the majority of the Brazilian population. The reason people like him so much is because of the project which he represented, which is uh, sovereignty, um, autonomy, South-South solidarity, and, um, you know, despite all of the criticism that you could make, I lived in Brazil during his entire presidency and, I, you know, I could make, I could criticize him too, but at, at his best, he represented, uh, you know, an alternative to uh, Northern capitalist hegemony and his role in, formula, in helping formulate the BRICS was a sign of, you know, support for creation of a multipolar world. And this irritated a lot of people. Um, May, one of the things that his project stands for is like maintaining national control over natural resources, such as petroleum and all of the other commodities that are found amply in Brazil. Um, you know, this, this put him up against the international oil industry. At one point, Petrobras, the state petroleum company, was becoming the largest petroleum company in the world after the pre-salt offshore deposits were discovered. And so, you know, since, since that's happened, since the coup, 
and everything. It's become less and less important. They're outsourcing more and more. BlackRock's taken over its gas station franchise in Brazil, for example. And, uh, and, and also he stood for, despite you know, all of the problems that organized labor has been having, he was the first uh, labor union leader president you know, the, in Brazil's history, and one of the first, I think, in world history, of actual union leader who's become a president of the country. And despite the fact that the unions in Brazil have lost a lot of power due to robotization and computers. I mean, one of the biggest and strongest unions historically in Brazil on the left is the bank tellers union, which has lost like 80% of its workers just because of ATM machines since the 1980s. You know, um, despite all of those losses, he still managed to put focus on um, using Keynesian or developmentalist um, economic strategies, you know, like stimulus for internal manufacturing and consumption of Brazilian goods, such as automobiles and electrodomestic products and things like that, which had a very positive effect on the labor market, despite the fact that, you know, the unions kept striking the entire time he was president. He was a labor union leader in power, but the Kut Labor Union Federation held 1,200 strikes in 2010, his last year in office, many of them against PT governments. So, uh, you know, that, and so when people say they get behind Lula, they're getting behind the project. Now, a lot of people really love him as a personality, as someone who rose up from abject poverty, but never um, forgot that he had been poor before and still knows how to communicate to poor people in relevant ways using metaphors from, you know, the day-to-day -day life. And, and so, he's someone who still lives in kind of like the Gary, Indiana of Sao Paulo, which is this steel... <laughs> This factory town that's got the worst air pollution in the region called San Bernardo. So he's someone who hasn't, he's, he's viewed as someone who's never kind of like sold out from where he's come from and who's capable of um, managing all of these diverse political antagonistic factions to push through a kind of um, center left or Keynesian developmentalist project for the nation that emphasizes autonomy and sovereignty. Yeah, I guess that sort of framing the man of the people is really important here. And it's actually quite common across, um, across Latin America. Lula, of course, was a shoeshine boy in his, uh, in his youth. He was disabled in an accident when he was a machinist. But, you know, actually, in, maybe if we're in the US or in Europe, the idea of a working class person becoming president seems utterly absurd. But right now in Latin America, you know, Nicolas Maduro of Venezuela was a bus driver and then a union leader. The new uh, president of uh, Peru, he was, um, he was once uh, selling stuff on the side of the road and he was a toilet cleaner. Uh, so it really is uh, possible in, in Latin America, at least, it seems to build these big people's movements, which actually are aware of their class position and challenge, uh, challenge the status quo and really sort of bring about uh, real change. And of course, in Brazil, you know, a lot of their policies are world famous. You know, the Balsa Familia project, which uh, gave direct cash uh, cash incentives to the poorest uh, families, uh, helped out something like 50 million people in the country. And it's estimated that that brought uh, 36 million people out of poverty. And so there are just incredible things that these countries, which are really hamstrung uh, in, their, in, their, um, in their actual like, ability to change things, 
uh, can do. And it just kind of thinks, you start to think maybe, you know, what could we do in the West if we started learning from these guys? But um, well, yeah, of course, it wasn't the last. Uh, Lula was put in prison by the Brazilian court system and his successor, Dilma Rousseff, was impeached. Um, both of them, both of those uh, charges were pretty spurious, um, apparently for corruption-related activities. But, you know, uh, as uh, I'm sure a lot of people watching this know, that uh, the judge who was uh, presiding over this, Sergio Moro, was actually not neutral, but was actually um, talking with the prosecution the whole time, advising them on how to best proceed. And then Moro would later take a position in Bolsonaro's cabinet, which just you know, if you want to talk about corruption in Latin America, there's just a gold standard example. Um, could you tell us a little bit about Operation Car Wash, as it was called in uh, in the West, and what it's meant for Brazil, and to also to what extent was the U.S. involved in all of this? All right. Well, that's like a lot of things to comment on <laughs> in your talk right there, because I want to go back a little and just explain a few things first. Um, re regarding Bolsa Familia, that's gotten a lot of credit internationally because the World Bank got behind it and tried to duplicate it in an inferior fashion in countries in Africa, like Ghana, lowering the monthly payments, using some econ econometric calculations, like what's the minimum amount of food you can give people, you know, wow. the minimum amount of money. So I think the Bolsa Familia in Ghana was like $8 a month they were trying to do at one point. However, it wasn't the biggest factor in removing. 36 million people from poverty in Brazil. And it's important to explain what was because it's counter to like neoliberal economics. I mean, we know that Milton Friedman kind of supported the idea of welfare. He called it like negative income tax or something. And the neoliberals kind of like these kinds of things. The biggest, IPEA, which is the Economic Institute, Applied Economic Institute, uh, Research Institute of Brazil. It's a governmental research institution. They did a huge longitudinal survey or study about the uh, causality of the poverty reduction during the PT years. And by far, the number one cause for poverty reduction was the minimum salary increases. Now, this was uh, the minimum salary was $50 a month in US terms when Lula took office, 315 a month when he left office. This had the by far the largest effect on reduction of poverty. The second largest effect was linking retirement payments to the minimum salary and incorporating all of these rural undocumented workers into the retirement system and his retirement reforms in 2004. The Bolsa Familia was a distant third. I just want to get say that right now because, uh, you know, if you read like New York Times or something, they'll always emphasize Bolsa Familia as this miracle project because even though it was a positive project, definitely, there is some kind of convergence with neoliberals on the issue of welfare sometimes, you know, welfare systems. I mean, um, so moving forwards. <laughs> and uh, also regarding your comment about working class leaders in Latin America, I think one of the reasons for that is because these, many of these countries, the majority of the population is working class. I think it's a little bit harder in the U.S. where the majority of the population is middle class to, to get some kind of working class person to take the presidency who didn't completely sell out his or her values, you know, uh, and become this kind of like Margaret Thatcher type character. Okay, so sorry about the background there, but moving to Lava Jato now. Basically, okay, Dilma Rousseff was impeached for a non-impeachable budgetary infraction called fiscal peddling, which was widely practiced in all levels of government at the time. It just involved 
shifting budget numbers around to bury a deficit or something in a report. It didn't involve an actual removal of money or personal enrichment, it was an infraction, which is why it was, according to Brazilian law, not justifiable to use as an impeachment. Nevertheless, she was exonerated from it. She didn't even do it. And furthermore, it was legalized in the Senate two days before she was thrown out of office. And Bolsonaro is doing it right now. All right. So in terms of the Lava Jato investigation, we have an investigation that we know was public knowledge from 2016 forward. That was a joint or trilateral investigation between the U.S. Department of Justice, which by all evidence I've seen, is, seems to be the organization that initiated Lava Jato, that created Lava Jato, the Swiss Federal Police, and, the, and a, a small local public prosecutor's office in Brazil's farthest right-wing big city, Curitiba, home to the largest Nazi demonstration ever held outside of European soil in the 1930s, which prides itself on its whiteness, then has a reputation as being very conservative, right? In the charges against Lula, now it now we know through the hacked um, telegram conversations that were released by a man named Wagner Delgatti, who's facing 300 years in jail right now for his uh, voluntary handing over of this documentation and stuff. Um, we now know that the, a group of 18 FBI agents was meeting with this Lava Jato prosecution team every 15 days for five years during the entire course of the investigation, guiding them on tactics. And one of the key tactics they used was new in Brazil, which was the use of coerced plea bargain testimonies. Um, they had only been legalized by Dilma Rousseff in what I think is one of the biggest mistakes of her presidency um, in around 2012. And it was, it was the first time big cases like this were relying entirely on coerced plea bargains. So basically what they did was they, taking a page out of the DOJ handbook, they arrested all these businessmen, threatened them with massive prison sentences and total loss of income, uh, 100 years, 126 years, 86 years, whatever. But if you give us this testimony we want, uh, we'll transfer you to house arrest, lower your sentence to like eight months, and you'll get partial, partial retention of illicit assets. And so of all of the Lava Jato charges that were levied against Lula to remove him from the elections during election season, every single one of them was based entirely on one or two coerced plea bargain testimonies by these businessmen who got millions of dollars in asset retention in exchange. And in, in all cases, they changed their testimony multiple times before they gave one that was acceptable enough to the prosecutors and to the judge uh, to enable them to get out of prison. There's no material evidence ever presented against Lula. No paperwork, no documentation, no record that he'd ever even set foot in the apartment in question in, in Guarujá. So it was essentially, it's now been proven beyond the shadow of a doubt and, uh, in the fact that, that all the charges have been overturned by the Supreme Court. There was a kangaroo, these were kangaroo court procedures that were designed you know, for political purposes. It, at the beck and call of the United States. Yeah, I mean, I know you guys at Brazil Wire uh, wrote an article that said that noted that the Lava Jato prosecutor called Lula's arrest a gift from the CIA, didn't you? 
So, I mean, I think the US has certainly got um, uh, something to uh, answer for in this whole case. Um, one of the reasons why Lula was so popular in Latin America and in Brazil was, uh, and so unpopular in Washington was his role in trying to build a much more multipolar world where the US was not really any longer the hegemon. I mean, in Latin America, along with leaders like Evo Morales in Bolivia or Hugo Chavez in Venezuela, he really helped uh, lead a wave of uh, independence-minded governments that challenged US power and began to try at least to integrate Latin American countries together in a way which had never really been seen before, certainly not since the days of the likes of Simon Bolivar 200 years ago. Um, could you comment a bit about the pink tide, as it's called, and Lula's role in the global stage more generally? Well, the, the, the pink tide is what um, people refer to, to this period when it seems like there's a perfect storm of good conditions for um, sovereignty in Latin America, really. You know, because it was at the moment when, on the one hand, the Bush administration was really tied up with Middle East. So it's, it kind of started de-emphasizing Latin America. On the other hand, the U.S. had lost all of its moral authority to criticize governments in Latin America for human rights abuses because of all of the torture allegations going out. And at the same time, um, there was this kind of wave uh, of um, increased collaboration and communication among groups, social movements and union groups and things like that in the Latin American left, in part because of the World Social Forum. You know, the first World Social Forum um, Evo Morales, Rafael Correa, Nestor and Cristina Kirchner, Jose Mojica, um, you know, um, Lula, they were all there uh, before they took office. And um, in the case, and also Daniel Ortega was there, you know, uh, Chavez was there, but he was already in office, you know, but it, it was like a forum where before it was kind of, I think over the years it's been partially sequestered by the NGO crowd, but at the beginning, it was an area of a lot of South-South um, dialogue and collaboration, things like that, not just with Latin America, but in, with you know, people from Africa and, and, and India and Asia and places like that as well. I think that was a factor. And what happened was, you know, one by one, um, uh, pre leftist presidents began getting elected all over Latin America. So to the point where at one point it was like El Salvador, Nicaragua, Cuba, Ecuador, you know, Venezuela, Bolivia, Uruguay, Paraguay, Brazil, and Argentina, and the, uh, and Chile to some extent too, with Michelle Bachelet. She's center left, um, but you know, and together these countries started trying to build like strengthened regional trade blocks, like Mercosur, ABLA. Um, Hugo Chavez started working to create Bank of um, like a development bank of the Americas, you know, there was the BRICS bank initiative. At the same time, Brazil was um, getting more and more involved in BRICS. At one point, the BRICS announced that they might abandon the dollar in international transactions, and Obama called up Lula in a panic, apparently, over this. Um, so, you know, in general, and not to say that you could make criticism about, okay, there's a few things you could criticize as well, you know, like, for example, to what point was international capital kind of supporting 
governments like um, Brazil and Argentina as a, uh, as a more moderate alternative to Chavism, you know, in an attempt to isolate Chavez and get convinced Bolivia to align more with Brazil and things like that. There was some geopolitical jockeying going around, which I think went out the door when Chavez died. I think, I think at some point, international capital felt like having center-left governments in South America as an alternative that they could portray as alternatives to uh, Venezuela and Cuba serve some kind of positive uh, you know, thing for, for capitalism. And you see that in like economist coverage of Lula and Brazil in the 2000s. In some points, they're really enthusiastic. But you know, they, they were more enthusiastic for the first three years of Lula's government when he was tied to IMF conditionality agreements before him and Kirshner paid off their debt on, early to the IMF. And they had to lay off 2,000 workers the next day. I mean, a- after that point, when they abandoned the, condi- the austerity stuff, I think they, start, they started losing support in the international community as well. Sorry for the long rambling answer there. I mean, no, no, really interesting. I remember <laughs> very well how um, people in the U.S., you know, academics and uh, think tankers, tried to really siphon off this good left of uh, Lula, Michel Bachelet in Chile and Jose Mujica in Uruguay as this, you know, the good left who follow the rules and, you know, they work within the system and the very, very bad left of uh, Hugo Chavez and Fidel Castro and Daniel Ortega and Evo Morales. But uh, that always seemed like a completely fake dichotomy, this good left, bad left, because, you know... Because they all hung out together. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Like the first thing he did after he was elected in, I think it was uh, 2006, he went to Venezuela and openly campaigned for Hugo Chavez, uh, his uh, re-election. And they were all, as you said, they were all hanging out together. They were all best friends, you know, creating these organizations which were directly challenging the United States. Like, for instance, SALAC, which was this, I don't want to say it's modeled on the European Union, but it was this... uh, union of uh, Latin American Caribbean nations, all the countries of the Western Hemisphere, except the US and Canada, who were specifically barred from ever joining. And a lot of the reason why I think uh, Obama, his administration started uh, having a much more moderate tone towards Cuba is in fact, what was going on in South America, where the other countries were just saying, listen, if you don't start inviting Cuba to the OAS, starting treating them normally, we're gone, we're going to just pull away and see you guys later. And so I think Obama was actually forced into this. And that's one of the reasons why I'm not particularly, um, I'm not particularly optimistic that Joe Biden is going to reverse the clock on Cuba. Anywho, apart from that, um, Lula holds a really commanding lead in the polls just now. Um, Yeah, it seems to me that this uh, idea about, you know, that Bolsonaro is using that he's either going to end up dead in prison or as president seems much more likely to apply to Lula himself, actually. Uh, What do you think the chances are of Lula becoming president next year? Yeah, it's a good question. And he hasn't announced that he's running yet even. You know, they, he doesn't have to announce he's running until one month before the election, really. I mean, they, they have very short campaign season in Brazil. It's a vastly superior system to the United States, where politicians spend millions of dollars and years campaigning. There. You know, but um, in terms of his chances, you know, like, if there are free and fair elections, he's going to win, obviously. You know, the question is, you know, there was a coup in 2016, 
there aren't free and fair elections. 2008 was not free and fair at all. I mean, even not even taking into consideration the fact that Lula was illegally removed through an exception made by the Supreme Court, you know, and denied his legal right to run for office from behind bars, which was guaranteed by a ruling by the UN Human Rights Commission Committee, you know, uh, which is, was legally binding in Brazil due to a law that makes their decisions legally binding or whatever. Despite all of that, even the campaign that was set up by Fernando Haddad, Lula's last minute replacement, who came in one month before the election, was sabotaged illegally by Sergio Moro, the Lava Jato judge, and he's facing felony charges for it. You know, he, he released, he leaked another coerced, an edited section of another coerced plea bargain testimony, um, um, damaging Haddad's image to all of the major media channels one week before the election. Um, and this testimony had been dismissed by the judiciary for being made up, invalid, completely invalid. Uh, he presented it as if it was a real, it was real evidence. And this was one week before the election. And this was something that affected, you know, uh, basically letting all the papers who were supporting Bolsonaro, who wanted anybody except the PT, who were like terrified that someone would come back in power and undo the labor, the neoliberal labor reforms and the, the um, austerity freezes and all of that. Um, they also they all supported Bolsonaro, so they they took and they took this story and ran with it. Except that you know, it's a felony to to do this uh, during the month before an election to leak any kind of information to the media, and also it's a felony in Brazil to accept a cabinet position from a candidate who you helped through this kind of behavior. So there's Moro's basically got two felony charges against him just for sabotaging Fernando Haddad's campaign, let alone the five charges he has related to Lula. So even, you know, even without Lula in the election, it was still sabotaged. Not, not even to mention all of these laws were broken related to um, spreading disinformation on the internet uh, through social media with bots and things like that. Uh, Brazil doesn't have the same kind of speech freedoms that the United States does. The system is more related to the German system. So like we know now that with support from Steve Bannon, Bolsonaro's son, Carlos, uh, micro-targeted groups of evangelical women and evangelical Christians and things like that with misinformation that Fernando Haddad, if, were, if he were elected president, would create a government panel to decide children's gender when they reach the age of five and all other kinds of outrageous homophobic lies you know, during the days before the election. So, so the question is, what's going to happen next year? We already know Steve Bannon's announced that Lula is the biggest, um, uh, he's the most dangerous leftist politician in the world. Brazil's elections are the second most important in the world after the U.S. Uh, Beatrix von Storch from AFD Germany was down meeting with Bolsonaro and his sons and fascist bloggers. Uh, last month, you know, talking about forming a new conservative international with Bolsonaro. Uh, Bolsonaro's son, Eduardo, was on stage with Mike Lindell in, in Sioux Falls last month, the My Pillow guy. So we know that this battle coming up, it's not just an internal Brazil election. 
It's a battle against the international far right, which is putting all of its energy into the next year's election. And they're going to try and come up with all kinds of crazy things. And I don't rule out possible assassination attempt against Lula. Uh, it's, it's too late to really come up with any legal maneuver to put him in prison at this point. So, you know, the and and the Biden administration is supporting Bolsonaro too. So it's not even the international far right, it's the US in general, it's both sides at this point. All of the promise of progressive Democrats influencing Biden on Latin America has gone under the bridge. He's turning out to be the worst president for Latin America since the the 1980s at this point, I think. Yeah, I mean, that's a really good point about how Brazil is really part of this nexus of far-right authoritarians. You know, we've seen Brazil uh, team up with the Trump administration, of course. Bolsonaro is a big fan of Donald Trump, always lets his supporters know that. He's quite close with uh, Narendra Modi as well in India. And, you know, to a certain extent, I almost agree with Steve Bannon when he says Bolsonaro, uh, sorry, uh, Lula is the most dangerous threat uh, to them. Uh, when you start thinking about it in this sort of, this, this kind of like uh, sort of radical way that they do, where they think you know democracy and people having a say over their own lives is a real threat, because uh, Brazil is a very important country. It's the fifth largest country by population. It's the largest one in Latin America, and Brazil had this um, had this ability to shield other radical governments in Latin America from the wrath of the U.S. So it is big enough. To to at least in part stand up to the world's only superpower in some points. So yeah, there is there is some truth to the idea that this is the second most important election coming up. Um, if Lula does become president, what sort of policies do you think we can expect from him? Will he be more radical or will he be more of a conciliator? I mean, and also what do you think the Brazilian elite would prefer? Do you think they prefer the more erratic neoliberalism of Bolsonaro or the more predictable social democracy that Lula um, probably will put in place? Well, I think some elites would support Lula, but most elites would rather have, you know, most elites would like to have a kind of neoliberal uh, character who is polite and cordial and dresses well and says nice things, but keeps screwing over the workers as much as possible, like a Juan Doria or something. But when push comes to shove, I think a lot of them would still support Bolsonaro over Lula, unfortunately. You know, um, in terms of what kind of government we would come to expect, I mean, I've seen, I've been involved in so many arguments online, barroom arguments, this and that about who's farther left, you know, how far left was Lula, this and that. I think you have to look at, it doesn't, it doesn't, it's not valid to compare things that someone actually did with things that other people are just talking about. You know, you could compare Sanders to Lula, right? What would Sanders have really accomplished if he'd been elected? When Lula was in power, the most he ever had in terms of seats in parliament was 24%, 24% with the inner ring allies of the PCW, the Communist Party of Brazil and the PSOL, Socialism, Socialism and Liberty Party, maybe 28% or 30% of Congress. He was only able to govern through coalition with right-wing parties. 
even so, and he, he sacrificed a lot of the historic, um, you know, goals of the PT, like agrarian reform and urban reform and political reform in the name of like eradicating hunger, which he succeeded in. But he made a lot of, you know, compromises, for example, uh, legalizing genetically modified, uh, you know, agricultural products and things like that. That was a big that pissed off everyone in the environmental movement when it happened. He made, I mean, he, so I think a, a new government of his would have to rely on a similar coalition. He would have to govern by decree mostly, which is what he did last time. You know, they, most of the things that eradicated, you know, that really in, caused positive change in Brazil were initially just done through decrees because he was unable to pass them in, in parliament, you know, like, like turning over, like building 17 new free public universities and guaranteeing 50% um, vacancies for people from the working class with a small differential for Afro-Brazilians. The PT, starting Lula administration and Dilma, they pushed that through initially just through decrees. So I think he would take over in an, an environment where he would be suffering a lot of attacks from this core 20% of the Brazilian population that's fascist. Although they've never gone away, they were around when he was around the first time. So uh, he's got experience doing it, but I, I don't think he would be able to govern as radically as he would want to, just as he wasn't able to the last time around. But he would, he's practical and pragmatic enough that I think he would be able to undo most, if not all, of the labor reforms and renationalize, partially renationalize you know, the assets lost by Petrobras since the coup. I don't, I'm not sure if he could do it all. I don't think he could undo all of the privatizations at this point. He would probably be forced to do some kinds of compromises. You know, he would start raising the minimum wage again. I mean, he's got his, you know, it's the, his project for governance uh, emphasizes all of these key points. So that's what I think would happen. But he would need, the, the thing is, he always banked on this kind of, um, petite bourgeois nationalist elite class, business class, uh, that was decimated by the Lava Jato investigation. That's the sector of Brazil's economy that Lava Jato went after. These nationalist business, you know, like the Tatas in India or something. You had these big companies like Odebrecht, where the owners actually cared about development in Brazil. You know, and so they've been kind of all bankrupted by Judge Moro. And uh, in their place, we have Halliburton and companies like that coming in. And, and uh, that, that class has been decimated. I don't know how he could rebuild it, really, at this point. Remembering that his, his vice president was a, one of these people. He was a um, clothing company, a clothing factory owner, who just happened to be like, he was a center-right Keynesian who was very nationalist. But you know what? He was seven in his 70s at that time. That, that generation is kind of, you know, almost gone now. So it's, it'll be interesting to see, first of all, if he's elected, which I hope, and then secondly, how he could govern if he is elected. But this idea that he would be incapable of governing, which is being spread by some people, self-declared vanguard leftists uh, in the Anglo media and things like that is a bunch of BS because he was suffering the same adversaries the last time around and he managed okay. And if Lula is elected, that will obviously open the door for a lot of other countries in the region 
I think they certainly need support, countries like Venezuela or Nicaragua. Um, if Lula is elected, does that bode well for the prospects of a new anti-imperialist uh, force or alliance or an independence-minded movement in Latin America, do you think? Well, it bodes well for multipolarity. It would bode well for, you know, um, more even-handed non-aligned relationships between China and the U.S., I think. I mean, what the U.S. is trying to do is build this coalition of all sycophantic um, entreguista leaders who favor the U.S. over its largest trade partner, because now China is the biggest trade partner for almost every country in Latin America. It doesn't make any rational sense for any leader to favor the U.S. over China right now. The rational thing to do would be either to favor China or to try not to take sides, like the non-aligned movement in the 60s, 50s and 60s, right? That's the thing that makes sense. But Biden's trying to build this kind of, uh, I mean, the only way you could even get a bunch of leaders on your side in that kind of project is to buy them, you know, or to put them in power or something, because it doesn't make any sense. So I think, it, I think, I don't want to sound overly optimistic about this, but I'm, I know that if Lula was put into power, it would be a new, it would, it would give a lot of power to these other left governments that are under attack from the U.S. right now. He said some uh, depressing things about Nicaragua lately, but I think it was meant as advice. I think he's trying to suggest to Ortega to pull a Cristina Kirchner move in the upcoming election and run as vice or something. You know, I think that's what he meant when he said this stuff about Nicaragua. But the history of the Workers' Party with relations with the Sandinistas is really strong. You know, relations were good during Lula and Dilma. And definitely Cuba, Venezuela, and all these other countries would have a shot in the arm from just from having such a big country in their neighborhood that recognizes them and uh, engages in them with trade and all these other things. Yeah, I mean, if nothing else, Brazil being a massive food exporter could certainly help those countries with uh, their problems. Um, I know also Lula was very important in uh, trying to build a more multipolar world. I watched an interview with you a couple of years ago where you talked to Lula and he said that he actually went to Iran to negotiate pretty much uh, the Obama administration's nuclear deal. He got Ahmadinejad to sign it and then... Um, when he went back to uh, the West, everybody treated him like a pariah, like, what are you doing? Don't get involved. <laughs> uh, they didn't like uh, this uh, guy from the Global South coming in and trying to, you know, uh, you know, be an independent-minded leader, which is what most of the world want to see. Yep, that, that really pissed a lot of people off. It, I think it really pissed people in the UK off when Brazil passed up the UK and became the fifth largest economy in the world. Uh, when, Lula, when Lula and Dilma were president, I think that was like, that sent a warning sign to the British. And they, we know, now know they were involved in, you know, obviously in the coup and all this process as well. And also holding secret meetings with Bolsonaro before he was elected and things like that. But uh, yeah, I think that definitely the, the real issue, I mean, Fidel Castro used to say that... Uh, you know, why did it, why does the U.S., why is it so intent on destroying Cuba? Because it's such a small country. It's Economically, it's not important at all. It's, and Castro always said it was because of hegemony. 
You know, it's, it's a thorn in the side of the U.S. to have a country 90 miles away that has a different economic system, a different vision of concepts like solidarity and education, things like that. And I think that this issue of hegemony, of, of the fact that Brazil at least was trying to present a kind of partially uh, independent economic and political project, a partially contra-hegemonic, you know, irritated a lot of people in Europe and the United States, you know, even if it wasn't like this massive socialist revolution or something like that, there were elements of it that just really were unacceptable to the United States. Like, for example, um, channeling 100, earmarking 100% of the profits from the state petroleum company, which you refuse to privatize to public health and education that like pisses, pisses, pisses people off. That there would even be this example, like why it doesn't even help the, I mean, the, the U.S. doesn't want to hear that um, a big con another big country in the Americas has a public health system and public free public university and things like that either, you know? Yeah, I mean, the Brazilian health system, even though they don't have the money that the U.S. does, is actually pretty impressive, all things considered. Certainly, I think a lot of Americans would be surprised to see what sort of, um, what sort of services you can get for free in Brazil. Um, can we talk about Bolsonaro a little bit more? Um, he's got a lot of, generally Brazil uh, is treated as this, you know, very positively in the U.S. because it's uh, pretty much because it's a client state of the U.S. right now with Bolsonaro doing what he's told whenever Washington asks of him. But, you know, he was just so poorly, he so poorly mismanaged um, the COVID response that I think just the sort of chaos that that led to uh, led to him getting a lot of bad press in the US. Uh, but it was nothing compared to what you guys were writing. Um, at Brazil Wire, you wrote that Brazil is at the mercy of a deranged lunatic. Can you explain why you wrote that and, and you know, just generally talk a bit more about Brazil and Bolsonaro and COVID? Well, I think I wrote something for fair about this. I think the um, the Anglo media used Bolsonaro as a scapegoat for his COVID response um, to be able to say, look over there, it's even worse. When actually what he did was he just copied Trump and Boris Johnson. And that's all his COVID response was, Trump, right? So it's kind of hypocritical for the U.S. media to point out. I mean, he didn't like invent a shitty way to respond to the COVID crisis. He just copied all of Trump's talking points, you know? Yeah, um, and even I so, it's chloroquine not, and everything, right? Yeah, everything. Trump sent him 2 million doses of hydroxychloroquine when the FDA banned it for um, treating COVID, you know? And, um, and the funny thing is, despite all of this, Brazil's still done a better job than the US. <laughs> you know, like even now, like, there's less anti-vaxxers in Brazil. There's some, I mean, they're copying the U.S. now, but like there isn't this big movement of, you know, 30% of the population of Brazil that's refusing to take the vaccine or something. But they haven't taken it yet because it hasn't been made available to them yet, even though over 70% has taken the first shot, okay? But he's, um, I, I don't know if, I might, I might have called him a deranged lunatic at a moment of, anger but i think a lot of what he does is really kind of like calculated you know um he's just literally i mean it, he's literally someone with strong nazi sympathies who uses nazi elements 
remembering that you know a lot of Nazis came over to Brazil after World War II, and uh, former Nazis were giving uh, uh, consulting to the Brazilian dictatorship on torture and things like that. And there was an indigenous fascist movement called the Integralists that are you know are still around today, where Beatrice von Storch met in their headquarters with members of the Brazilian royal family who were far right, you know, ultra right Catholics as well. So there's always been all of these fascist elements in Brazil bubbling under the surface. The military dictatorship was neo-fascist, um, using a lot of the trappings of fascism. And so Bolsonaro, you know, is someone who um, has said publicly that he would have proudly fought in Hitler's army in World War II. He's, he wrote letters to neo-Nazi websites 15 years ago saying, you're the reason my political career exists. Uh, he had a um, campaign slogan, you know, basically it was Brazil Uberalis, Brazil above all. Uh, he had another campaign slogan that said, work sets you free. And uh, he, he had one of his ministers was forced to resign because he simulated a Goebbels press conference from Nazi Germany with the same, like the picture of Bolsonaro positioned in the same place the Hitler photo was. And so uh, I would say that it's not maybe, it's not insane or deranged his, his position. It's just fascist, you know, it's fascist. He's built up internal enemies. He foams at the mouth and rants and raves against imaginary communist enemies, you know, uh, that he creates. So the Economist magazine is now called the Ecommunist to him, you know, wow. <laughs> even the Economist is communist. So everybody's communist. In that sense, it's very similar to, you know, the rantings of a Hitler type against communists. I mean, you know, they, he uses a lot of this anti-communist rhetoric from the Nazis. Communists eat children or whatever, this kind of garbage. So I would say deranged in the sense that like Mussolini and Hitler were deranged, but there's a logic behind it. You know, there's a rational, I mean, there's an ethos. He has, he, he has this kind of fascist ethos and you could really see it out in full swing on September 7th in Brasilia. You know, it reminded me of what, I mean, I started, I was filming for Telesur, right? So I started filming and all of a sudden I realized that my camera angles were beginning to look like Lenny Reifenstahl camera angles, you know, like that's how fascist the scene was. Like I couldn't help like all of a sudden getting these majestic looking camera angles and stuff with these jets flying overhead. It was really crazy. It was really crazy. So yeah, yeah, I think that's a really good point. Um, sometimes Bolsonaro is a lot more intelligent and thoughtful than we give him credit for. Certainly when he dedicated, when he voted to impeach Dilma and then dedicated, vote, dedicated his vote to uh, the, uh, the unit that was uh, brutalizing Dilma when she was a rebel during the dictatorship, yeah. he knew exactly what he was doing there, didn't he? Yeah, the rape unit. I mean, these were rapists. Right. And you still had people trying to say that Bolsonaro wasn't fascist when he took out office. Like, oh, you're being the left is being alarmist for suggesting they might be fascist. He dedicated his vote to impeach Dilma Rousseff to a man, Colonel Brillanti Ustra, who used to have rats stuck up women's vaginas. Right. So he's not a fascist. Give me a break. 
mean, not that that's a symbol. There's a lot of reasons that you could call him a fascist, but that's like an example, like openly supporting torture of communists and labor union activists. Sure. Yeah, I think in the West, we tend to think about fascism as just the camps of Hitler. And maybe if you're a real intellectual, you might be able to talk about Mussolini. But in Latin America, there's a much much longer strain of fascism, which has gone back decades with many flavors in many countries which have had military or semi-military dictatorships ruling over these countries for decades in some cases. Um, I want to just... As we finish, I want to go on to a bit much, a uh, bit more of a more positive light. Um, it's a hundred years to the month since Paulo Freire was born, the legendary Brazilian educator. I would urge everybody to read *Pedagogy of the Oppressed*. I think it's a marvelous tome. I think a lot of us have had um, teachers in our life who have been so good that they've really inspired us and changed our views on things, but. Not many people have had a teacher so good that the government sent them to jail. And that's really how good Paolo Freire was, you know. Uh, his book has been translated into dozens of languages, Pedagogy of the Oppressed. And I know uh, you guys at Brazil Wire are big fans of him. Do you want to say anything about Paolo Freire? Yeah, I mean, uh, there's, he's kind of like, on the, one, on the one side, he's been attacked by the Bolsonaro administration now. He's been considered like the biggest enemy to Brazilian education for years, three, four years now, trying to purge any reference of him from the educational system. On the other side, you have the bourgeois trying to convert him into this harmless Martin Luther King style icon, robbing all of the revolutionary messages from his teaching as epitomized by the Google uh, doodle yesterday of Paulo Freire on his 100th birthday. But I think um, in addition to like, Pedagogy of the Press, which is a really important book. One thing that stands out about him is all of the really incredible solidarity work he did while he was on, in exile. I mean, like he, uh, he was in Guinea-Bissau with Amilcar Cabral. You know, he was an important figure in the uh, anti-apartheid movement. He helped the Sandinistas develop their adult literacy program. He was organizing with the Puerto Rican separatists in my hometown of Chicago in the 1970s. I found out when I was back there that he helped start an alternative school in 1973 in the Puerto Rican neighborhood of Humboldt Park. And he was, he was a, someone who believed a lot in solidarity. And um, I guess I could just say like a technique I learned about because I used to work um, in a favela in Sao Paulo with a bunch of people who actually worked with Paulo Freire and learned everything. They're like community organizers, learned everything from him firsthand. And one of the techniques he taught them is when you go into a room full of people who don't have any education, which was very common in the military dictatorship, only 60% of the people in Brazil had access to schools. So they told me of a story in a Catholic church where um, Paulo Freire walked in and said, well, what do you guys know? And someone was like, well, I don't know anything. I don't know how to read. I don't know anything. And uh, Fred was like, well, what do you know? Like, what do you know how to do? How do you eat? Where are you from? Well, I'm from this little town in Bahia. Well, how did you used to eat when you lived? I was a fisherman. How do you know when it's time to catch fish? Well, because the sun, you know, it's like the sun is at a certain angle over the water in the morning at dawn. And so he'd start writing down on the wall everything that the people told me they knew about from their own life. And by the end of the exercise, he'd covered all four walls. 
you know? And so, so then he's like, um, well, how can you tell me you don't know anything then? It's obvious that you know all kinds of things. What you guys don't know that how to do is read, you know? And that would be like a starting point of a kind of um, exercise he would do uh, back, in the, back in the day. So he was, he was a really incredible teacher. And uh, my favorite quote of his is that it would be naive to expect um, a class of oppressors to ever give the oppressed the knowledge they would need to understand, you know, the nature of their uh, subjugation, right? So, and also, if, like, if you've ever had this, if you've ever had the teachers told you to, like, let's all pull our chairs together in a circle, <laughs> that's basically Paulo Freire, too. <laughs> yeah, it's incredible how much uh, influence Freire's had around the world, and a lot of people don't realize it. I mean, that book, which is really a teaching manual, is really about trying to get people who are like more activist or revolutionary minded to really think about the sort of biases that are inculcated into them. You know, there's a great quote about how, you know, um, there's a certain section of the oppressed or a class which will always side with the, the people who are being oppressed, but, you know, because of their background, they believe that they must be the executors of the transformation and they have to really, they, they take with them the sort of biases and the snobbishness of it and think that these ordinary people can't lead themselves when in fact they're more than capable of doing so. And in fact, the only way to build a really truly just society is to have those people leading from the start. Yeah. Um, Ryan Mir from that's Brazil. Had, that's what, oh, sorry. No, keep going. That's keep going. One, that's what, that's exactly what Lula represents. I mean, remembering that Paulo Freire helped Lula found the workers party too. Sure. Yeah, listen, it's been an absolute pleasure, uh, Brian Meir of Brazil Wire. I want everyone watching this to go to brazilwire.com. That's Brazil with an S. Uh, have a look at the website and then uh, bookmark it. Uh, is there anything else you want to talk about or discuss or plug today, Brian? No, uh, that's about it, except that I'm also, in addition to um, editing Brazil Wire, I, I'm a Brazil correspondent for Telesur English news program from the South. So you can find me on Twitter with my Telesur account, Brian M. Telesur. Brian M. Telesur, we'll put that up on the screen. Thank you very much for your time today, Brian. I've really enjoyed this conversation. Thanks a lot. Cheers. Cheers.